Chapter sixty two of Is He Popenjoy? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry O'Neill. Is He Popenjoy? by Anthony Trollope. Chapter sixty two. The Will. Lord George came back to England as quick as the trains would carry him, and with him came the sad and mournful burden which had to be deposited in the vaults of the parish church at Manor Cross. There must be a decent tombstone, now that the life was gone, with decent words upon it and a decent effigy, even though there had been nothing decent in the man's life. The long line of past marquises must be perpetuated and frederick augustus the tenth peer of the name must be made to lie with the others lord george therefore for he still was lord george till after the funeral travelled with his sad burden some deputy undertaker having special charge of it and rested for a few hours in london mr knox met him in mr stokes chambers and there he learned that his brother who had made many wills in his time had made one last will just before he left london after his return from rudham park mr stokes took him aside and told him that he would find the will to be unfavourable i thought the property was entailed said lord george very calmly mr stokes assented with many assurances as to the impregnability of the family acres and the family houses but added that there was money, and that the furniture had belonged to the late Marquis to dispose of as he pleased. "'It is a matter of no consequence,' said Lord George, whom the loss of the money and furniture did not in truth at all vex. Early on the following morning he went down to Brotherton, leaving the undertakers to follow him as quickly as they might. He could enter the house now, and to him, as he was driven home under the oaks, no doubt there came some idea of his own possession of them but the idea was much less vivid than the dean's and was chiefly confined to the recollection that no one could now turn him out of the home in which he had been born and in which his mother and sisters and wife were living had his elder brother been a man of whom he could have been proud i almost think he would have been more contented as a younger brother it is over at last were the first words he said to his wife not finding it to be more important that his greatness was beginning than that his humiliation should be brought to an end the funeral took place with all the state that undertakers could give to it in the little village but with no other honours lord george was the chief mourner and almost the only one one or two neighbours came mr de baron from rudham park and such of the farmers as had long been on the land among them being mr price but there was one person among the number whom no one had expected this was jack de baron he has been mentioned in the will said mr stokes very gravely to lord george and perhaps you would not object to my asking him to be present lord george did not object though certainly captain de baron was the last person whom he would have thought of asking to manor cross on any occasion he was made welcome however with a grave courtesy what on earth has brought you here said old mr de baron to his cousin don't in the least know got a letter from a lawyer saying i had better come thought everybody was to be here who had ever seen him he hasn't left you money jack said mr de baron what will you give for my chance said jack but mr de baron though he was much given to gambling speculations did not on this occasion make an offer 
After the funeral, which was sadder even than funerals are in general, though no tear was shed, the will was read in the library at Manor Cross, Lord George being present together with Mr. Knox, Mr. Stokes, and the two de Barons. The dean might have wished to be there, but he had written earlier in that morning an affectionate letter to his son-in-law, excusing himself from being present at the funeral. I think you know, he had said, that I would do anything either to promote your welfare or to gratify your feelings, but there had unfortunately been that between me and the late Marquis which would make my attendance seem to be a mockery. He did not go near Manor Cross on that day, but no one knew better than he, not even Mr. Knox himself, that the dead lord had possessed no power of alienating a stick or a brick upon the property. The will was very short, and the upshot of it was that every shilling of which the Marquis died possessed, together with his house at Como and the furniture contained in the three houses, was left to our old friend Jack de Baron. I took the liberty, said Mr. Stokes, to inform his lordship that should he die before his wife, his widow would be entitled to a third of his personal property. He replied that whatever his widow could claim by law, she could get without any act of his. I mention this, as Captain de Baron may perhaps be willing that the widow of the late Marquis may be at once regarded as possessed of a third of the property. Quite so, said Jack, who had suddenly become as solemn and funereal as Mr. Stokes himself. He was now engaged to Gus Mildmay with a vengeance. When the solemnity of the meeting was over, Lord George, or the Marquis as he must now be called, congratulated the young heir with exquisite grace. I was so severed from my brother of late, he said, that I had not known of the friendship. Never saw him in my life till I met him down at Rudham, said Jack. I was civil to him there, because he seemed to be ill. He sent me once to fetch a ten-pound note. I thought it odd, but I went. After that he seemed to take to me a good deal. He took to you to some purpose, Captain de Baron. As to me, I did not want it, and certainly should not have got it. You need not for a moment think that you are robbing us. That is so good of you, said Jack, whose thoughts, however, were too full of Gus Mildmay to allow of any thorough enjoyment of his unexpected prosperity. Stokes says that after the widow is paid and the legacy duty, there will be eight and twenty thousand pounds, whispered Mr. de Baron to his relative. By heavens, you are a lucky fellow. I am rather lucky. It will be fourteen hundred a year if you only look out for a good investment. A man with ready money at his own disposal can always get five per cent at least. I never heard of such a fluke in my life. It was a fluke, certainly. You'll marry now and settle down, I suppose. I suppose I shall, said Jack. One has to come to that kind of thing at last. I knew when I was going to Rudham that some deep blank thing would come of it. Oh, of course I'm awfully glad. It's sure to come sooner or later, and I suppose I've had my run. I've just seen Stokes, and he says that I'm to go to him in about a month's time. I thought I should have got some of it to-morrow. "'My dear fellow, I can let you have a couple of hundreds, if you want them,' said Mr. de Baron, who had never hitherto been induced to advance a shilling when his young cousin had been needy. Mr. Stokes, Mr. Knox, Mr. de Baron, and the heir went away, leaving the family to adjust their own affairs in their new position. Then Mary received a third lecture as she sat leaning upon her husband's shoulder. "'At any rate, you won't have to go away any more,' she said to him. "'You have always been away for ever so long.' 
It was you who would go to the deanery when you left London. I know that. Of course I wanted to see papa then. I don't want to talk about that any more. Only you won't go away again. When I do, you shall go with me. That won't be going away. Going away is taking yourself off by yourself. Could I help it? I don't know. I could have gone with you. But it's over now, isn't it? I hope so. It shall be over, and when this other trouble is done, you'll go to London then? It will depend upon your health, dear. I am very well. Why shouldn't I be well? When a month is over, then you'll go. In two months, perhaps. That'll be the middle of June. I'm sure I shall be well in three weeks. And where shall we go? We'll go to Munster Court, shan't we? As soon as the house is ready in St. James Square, we must go there. Oh, George, I do so hate that house in St. James Square. I shall never be happy there. It's like a prison. Then he gave her his lecture. My love, you should not talk of hating things that are necessary. But why is St. James Square necessary? Because it is the town residence belonging to the family. Munster Court was very well for us as we were there before. Indeed, it was much too good, as I felt every hour that I was there. It was more than we could afford without drawing upon your father for assistance. But he likes to be drawn upon, said Mary. I don't think there is anything papa likes so much as to be drawn upon. That could make no difference to me, my dear. I don't think that as yet you understand money matters. I hope I never shall, then. I hope you will. It will be your duty to do so. But, as I was saying, the house at Munster Court will be unsuitable to you as Lady Brotherton. On hearing this, Mary pouted and made a grimace. There is dignity to be borne, which, though it may be onerous, must be supported. I hate dignity. You would not say that if you knew how it vexed me. Could I have chosen for myself personally, perhaps, neither would I have taken this position. I do not think that I am by nature ambitious. But a man is bound to do his duty in that position in which he finds himself placed, and so is a woman. And it will be my duty to live in an ugly house? Perhaps the house may be made less ugly, but to live in it will certainly be a part of your duty. And if you love me, Mary, do you want me to tell you whether I love you? But, loving me as I know you do, I am sure you will not neglect your duty. Do not say again that you hate your dignity. You must never forget now that you are Marchioness of Brotherton. I never shall, George. That is right, my dear, he said, omitting to understand the little satire conveyed in her words. It will come easy to you before long. But I would have all the world feel that you are the mistress of the rank to which you have been raised. Of course it has been different hitherto, he said, endeavouring in his own mind to excuse the indiscretion of that kappa-kappa. This lecture also she turned to wholesome food and digested, obtaining from it some strength, and throwing off the bombast by which a weaker mind might have been inflated. She understood at any rate that St. James Square must be her doom, and while acknowledging this to herself, she met a little resolution that a good deal would have to be done to the house before it was ready for her reception, and that the doing would require a considerable time. When she heard the purport of the late lord's will, she was much surprised, more surprised probably than Jack himself. 
why should a man who is so universally bad such a horror leave his money to one who is so 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 good as jack de baron the epithet came to her at last in preference to any other and what would he do now george had told her that the sum would be very large and of course he could marry if he pleased at any rate he would not go to Perham. the idea that he should go to Perham had made her uncomfortable perhaps he had better marry gus mildmay she was not all that his wife should be but he had said that he would do so in certain circumstances those circumstances had come round and it was right that he should keep his word and yet it made her somewhat melancholy to think that he should marry gus mildmay very shortly after this and when she was becoming aware that the event which ought to have taken place on the first of april would not be much longer delayed there came home to her various things containing lectures almost as severe and perhaps more eloquent than those she had received from her sister her father and her husband there was an infinity of clothes which some one had ordered for her and on all the things which would bear a mark there was a coronet the coronets on the pocket-handkerchief seemed to be without end and there was funereal note-paper on which the black edges were not more visible than the black coronets and there came invoices to her from the tradesmen addressed to the marchioness of brotherton and then there came the first letter from her father with her rank and title on the envelope at first she was almost afraid to open it End of chapter sixty two